When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi everyone, I'm Boomer Esiason, and I am so delighted to have you join us here on our all-new Game Time podcast. Now, our guest today is without question the GOAT of professional surfing. Now, he's also an actor, an author, an innovator, an entrepreneur, and of course, he's an international A-list celebrity. It's certainly my pleasure to welcome 11-time world champion Kelly Slater. Kelly, so great to have you. Welcome to our Game Time podcast. Boomer, nice to meet you. How are you, man? You turned 50 this year and you own the surfing record book from top to bottom. You were the youngest world champion at the age of 20 and then the oldest world champion at 39. How would you describe the different stages of an athlete's career? Oh, the beginning is so much excitement. I would say the middle part in your 20s, you know, for me that my prime was my mid 20s into Actually, my best year ever was was thirty six um, as as for results. But uh, through your twenties, when you really have what you think is your craft and your technique mastered, um, that's where it's really fun because you you get to play with it a little bit. You get to take chances after you've had some success. Um, in in the later parts of your career, I think you are trying to reinvent yourself to some degree, and that's a whole process. You have to go through a few different uh, uh, a few different roofs to get get to what the next stage is for yourself and um, and then at some point I think you settle into everything you know and try to add new things to it and and keep your mind fresh keep the approaches fresh and and be open to new ideas you know you're often credited with propelling professional surfing into the mainstream so how would you say the world surf league is doing these days and how do you see it growing in the future it's an interesting thing because it's changed a lot. The, the early days were basically a, a little stand on the beach, and uh, that was the world, uh, the world tour. And um, it was really anyone in the world could walk up and be within the area. Now we have our security, and we got our closed-off sections, and we ha- all have our trainers and coaches. I don't, but uh, most of the guys do. Um, so it's a much more professional uh, sport than it was. Obviously, there's more money in it. There's there's more eyes on it, um, and uh, the advancement in in performance and uh, everyone's uh, abil- Obviously, everyone's abilities have skyrocketed, but the the uh, the boards are night and day from what they used to be. We can reproduce exactly what we've already ridden over and over again. Um, 
it, it really doesn't look anything like it used to. But the World Surf League is it has changed what we're traditionally used to a lot. Um, it's tightened up the season to six months instead of 11, 10 or 11. Um, it, everything's a lot more concise. There's fewer number of people on tour. There's a cut that happens now. Uh, when I first was surfing on tour, it was totally open. Anyone could go enter the trials event. If you surf through to the main, you could surf against the big dogs. Um, but now it, <clears throat> it ends up being the top 24 surfers in the world by halfway through the year. And, um, we all surf it down to a final five, uh, and then they compete for the world title in their own separate event. Um, so it, it, it's evolved and changed quite a bit. I think we're still trying to find our feet and, and um, understand exactly what the best formula is for it to appease both the surfers and the, the tradition of surfing and also the sponsors. Um, so uh, I, I think we're getting real close now. But yeah, it's definitely evolved and advancing quickly. You know, I, I can't imagine that I'm going to ask this question because surfing op opened a whole globe to you. I mean, you became an A-list celebrity in all these countries around the world for the right reasons. Now, I'm going to ask you this. If you weren't a surfer, which is almost impossible for any of us to even imagine, what do you think <laughs> you would have done with your life? Was there ever a plan B for Kelly Slater? There was no plan B for me. You know, I... I I played baseball. I played football. I actually loved both those sports a lot. When I was a, when I was a kid, I was actually really good in the field in baseball. I wasn't a uh, I pitched a little bit, but I wasn't a very good pitcher, and um, I wasn't a very good hitter. But uh, I understood the game, and I could feel where the ball was going to be at all times. And same thing with football. As a as a mighty might, I played on the little teams when I was under twelve. Um, I was the smallest kid, but I was really strong and fast. And uh, I, I played nose guard, and I could get through the line really quickly. I could always see where the play was going to go. And um, I actually, I had a lot of sacks and, and actually interceptions because I played safety as well. Uh, but same thing, I wasn't great with the ball running. Um, I could catch pretty good. I, I loved other sports, but for my size and my physical ability, surfing was the perfect thing for me. I, I would like to think that I would have found music or maybe jiu-jitsu. I, I did some martial arts as a kid, which I really liked, but I didn't like fighting. I, the first time I sparred, I kicked a kid in the leg and he started crying and I felt bad about it. So <laughs> it wasn't really my thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. All right. So how did you feel when you first heard that surfing had become an Olympic sport and how disappointed, unfortunately, were you that you weren't able to participate in the Tokyo Summer Olympics? Um... Look, to us, our, our Olympics is the world title and surfing pipeline. So that was always the thing that was important to me personally. Because surfing wasn't an Olympic sport, I didn't spend my life hoping it was going to be. I just didn't think it was going to be. And uh, logically, it didn't make sense to me because I was like, I don't know if it's a summer sport or a winter sport. And there's certain countries we go to where there's no waves. So I don't know how they're going to have it. You know, I had all that in my mind. But now that it is an Olympic sport, I was the first man out on the team. Look, I had my opportunity to make the team. Um, I could go out there and, and surf and, and perform to a level to make it. And I didn't do that. So, I, you know, I didn't earn my spot. Um, you know, there, there are people that, oh, you know, you've spent so much time, you should be in. But the, the level is the level. And, you know, the it's the top of the top and you got to you got to perform your way into that that position and um you know if i can't do that then maybe i'm not supposed to be there and that is another 
goal of mine. I'm trying to make the 2024 team. I either have to be the top two uh, male surfers on tour from America, or there is one process that can create a wild card for, for a team that was just determined recently. There'll be one more of those events prior to the Olympics in 24. So there's an outside chance I get given a wild card. The event is going to be at, uh, at Chopo in Tahiti, which is a French mm-hmm. island. So, uh, with the Olympics being in France, uh, that's an event I've done really well at. I've won a whole bunch of times in the past and it's one of the events I, I excel at waves like that. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to make that team. And if I don't, that's just life. And, and, um, you know, that's the way it goes. You know, uh, you want to earn it. That's the key. You want to earn it. That's always something I'm sure that Kelly Slater would tell any younger surfer as well. As far as I'm concerned, like you've won as many gold medals as, as anybody in life watching what you do and how you carry yourself. All right, folks, we're here talking with the one and only Kelly Slater here on the Game Time Podcast. Now, Kelly, this year you hosted a segment on the Oscars that saluted 60 years of James Bond. James Bond, really? What was that like? It was fun because Bill Murray was there. We got to hang out with him a bit and, uh, you know, rub shoulders with a bunch of people. So it was, it was fun. The, the, the not fun part about it was I came down with COVID a few days later. But uh, it, was a, it was a good experience. All worth the experience, I'm sure. Now, back in February, just before your 50th birthday, yeah, you don't look 50, but yes, you turned 50. You won the world's most famous wave, and that's the Bonsai Pipeline in Oahu's North Shore. Now, did you surprise yourself winning it at your age? It's a good question. I, five years ago, I broke my foot really badly, like a terrible injury. Basically, I think for a football player, it would have put him out. It would have ended their career. Um, we, we don't have to run so much. We're just kind of locked in place. So I was able to eventually heal enough to get back in the water. But it's been a struggle because I haven't won a contest since prior to my injury. And um, I, But I have been I, – I think I've been third place in that event maybe three of the last five years before that. So I've been close, and I know the Wave at Pipeline really well. I've surfed there for close to 40 years now. Thirty. This will be my 38th or 39th year there. And um, I knew I could do it, but, you know, that doubt starts to creep in when you haven't won for a long time and you start to doubt your decisions and get a little nervous. It's kind of like winning the first time, you know, that that first time you win something, um, it's scary on some level and you don't think you can can do it until you've done it and then it becomes easier. So there's definitely a ceiling I had to break through there for myself again and had to trust my my instincts and my intuition and and my choices, but uh, I knew I could do it. I just, the, the, sometimes the, the thing between your ears gets in the way. Yeah, you're right. And uh, by the way, you did call it the best win of your life. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that's exactly why. Yeah, I would say so because, I don't know, the, the first time you do something and then um, uh, that that's usually the best. And then if you have some challenges you have to break through in order to, to accomplish your goals, that, that makes something amazing. But look, I've loved every, every win I've ever had, obviously, but uh, this one at my age with the doubts that I, was, I had creeping in, I, probably with the doubts other people had creeping in, and also for the inspiration it seemed to give to a lot of people that I don't even know that come up to me and are telling me they cried when I won and it was inspirational to them and it meant a lot to their life or the message that I've got from thousands of people 
it's been really inspiring. And um, that's the thing that sometimes when you when you're getting tired of doing something and then you hear that from somebody, it really kind of lights the flame again. You know, and I'm glad you actually brought that up because one of those thousands of texts came from your buddy Tom Brady. And I'm wondering yep. what uh, TB12 uh, said to you and, and how was he impressed by your victory? Yeah, no, just a basic congratulations, you know, and told me it was really great. But uh, it, it was funny because the day I won, that was the day that he retired. And I sent him a message and I congratulated <laughs> him on his career. And uh, I said, but, you know, I know, I know you're not done. Come on, we know you. Because when a guy's at that level, Brady's the scariest guy, and uh, he's the scariest quarterback in the league still. Um, I don't think anyone wants to be against him in a Super Bowl because of what he's pulled off in the past and what he knows about the way the, the flow of a game can go. And then it was just a few weeks later that he announced his unretirement. And I, I think I think when you're when you're on the verge at, at older age in your career and you're trying to retire. I think you need to say it out loud and you need to feel it and see if it feels right. And, um, you know, maybe it was the, uh, the, the, the test case for Tom, but it didn't feel right to him, it seems like. And so he's back in. I think we just made some news here. You're the reason why he unretired. That's what I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you know, you're also quite the golfer, a two handicap, in fact. And I know in the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, you play with Drew Brees, another quarterback that retired, and you're outliving all these quarterbacks. So what was his take on retirement? Actually, funny story, Drew and I, I hadn't seen him in a few years. He came up to our surf ranch, the wave we made in uh, the Central Valley in California and surfed with me for a couple of days a few years ago. It was the first time I got to meet him. And uh, we had a good couple of days, just basically just he and I and one other friend surfing at the, at the wave. But um, I hadn't seen him in a few years. And we hooked up in uh, Maui at McKenna Golf Course last year. And Obama was there. And uh, I got to play, play golf with Obama a couple of years ago. And... Uh, uh, Drew and I are going down at this, I think the 18th, we're on the 18th hole, which goes right next to the first and Obama was teeing off on the first. So we went over and chatted to him for a little bit. Uh, but, but, uh, Drew and I talked a lot about retirement actually. And he said, stick with it until that essentially he said, stick with it until the fire's gone because he did miss it. He said he missed it. And, um, uh, you can understand why, you know, the, the thrill of, of doing the thing you love the most and, having success at it, it's really hard to step away from. And, um, every, but everyone has their own time and everyone has their own, their own schedule in their life with family and work and, you know, the future and all that stuff. So, uh, no one's timetable is right for someone else's. You know, it's, uh, you seem like a really humble guy, you know, and you've accomplished so much in your life. And I'm just wondering for somebody like you, and, you know, I refer to you as the GOAT. I refer to Tom Brady as the GOAT. It's Michael Jordan, it's Muhammad Ali, it's Babe Ruth. Do you ever take stock into what that means and how does that make you feel? Uh, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, uh, it, it's humbling to hear that. It's, it's an honor to hear that. I, as a little kid, I wanted to be the best in the world. I wanted to be the best I could possibly be. And I would go to bed at night dreaming about that. I would imagine how to surf waves, how to ride waves, all the different places in the world I wanted to go, the, the, the people I wanted to surf with, um, the, the message, I guess, I wanted to put out to people that in my mind, in my little town was just a, a simple thing of like, do your best and have fun. Um, but my mind was obsessively filled with 
the dreams I had in my life. And coming from a small town without a whole lot happening in Cocoa Beach, Florida, um, I sort of just dreamt of the world being my home. And it and I went out and made that happen. And I have friends all over the world and almost every country I can imagine. And um, uh, for someone like yourself, who isn't part of my world, and, and surfing wasn't a very big sport when I started, you know, it, it wasn't really a career path. It, there was a few people in the world making money from it back then. And my parents supported what I did. And, and um, luckily, the the industry turned out the way it did on the timeline where I was growing up and, and making a living. But to hear that feels like I did something right in my life. And I, I spent my time in a positive way. And, and uh, all the ideas and dreams I had in my head were right. Well, Kelly, you've done a lot in your life. And we're getting warmed up with the great Kelly Slater. We'll look back at a boyhood filled with NASA rockets over his head and Jaws themed board beneath his feet when game time continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Game Time, everyone. Cocoa Beach, Florida, just south of Cape Canaveral, was the fictional setting for the mid-1960s sitcom I Dream of Jeannie. Now, in real life, it's a place where the wishes of young, aspiring East Coast surfers, such as the great Kelly Slater, are granted thanks to the constant three-foot waves. And I'm just wondering, at age five, you're out there with a styrofoam board, and by eight, you're doing 360s and winning competitions. Now, is it true that you would paddle out shortly after sun up with a snack and a plastic bag held between your teeth? <laughs> Not exactly. The beach went far away. The waves don't break too far off the beach in Cocoa Beach. And my mom actually worked at the little snack shop on the beach where I grew up surfing for a little while. Uh, but yeah, look, my mom liked to sunbathe and my dad liked to surf and drink beer and play video games. And that was the spot in Cocoa Beach to do all that. And uh, it was really the, the, the hangout for everyone who surfed in our region. And I don't know, my dad owned a bait and tackle shop about a block away from there. So that was the beach we ended up at. And we would either fish or body surf or surf or boogie board or whatever, anything to be in the ocean. And um, it was a really fun time. I, th I think uh, around 1980 or 81 was the first shuttle launch. I remember being on the beach and watching it. Um, I watched, in fact, I watched the first 20, I guess it was the first 24, 25 launches. Mm -hmm. I saw every single one of them. And it, I think it was the 25th one that exploded. And it was the first one I didn't watch the whole launch. I, I looked out my window and saw it going up and I went back to bed. It was the coldest day of the year in Florida. And 
Uh, I remember hearing this horrible giant rumble, the whole house shaking, and then it went quiet. And uh, a few hours later, I woke up and my mom told me it had exploded. But that was a huge part of our lives, you know. The, the, the shuttle launches were just massive and they were so exciting. And it was a fun time to, to grow up in that area. Do you remember your first custom board? And if you do, what was it like? My first custom board was 1980. I was eight years old. I waited up what felt like an eternity for that board, but it was about six months. And we used to go into the factory where it was being made every few weeks or every month, and it would still be sitting in the same place, <laughs> not getting any more love from the glassers and sanders. But uh, my first board was a five foot two inch board. Um, at, at that time, surfing was transitioning between uh, single fins and twin fins. And, uh, and about a year later, it was going to three fins on a board. My board had the option for either two fins or a single fin. So there was three fin positions. And um, uh, little did I know, a year later, it was going to be th three fins that was the, the, the in-fashion thing. And that's where we've ended up is mostly on three-fin boards. But it had a picture of Jaws. It had the Jaws poster airbrushed on the bottom where the shark's coming up at the girl swimming naked. <laughs> and I remember being really, really shy as a kid for anyone to see the bottom of my board because there was a naked woman swimming on it. You couldn't really see anything, but we all knew what that poster was. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about, you know, all the sports memorabilia these days. What do you think that board would be worth on the open market? Well, I'd pay anything for it, but I have no idea where it is. So, I mean, <laughs> somebody could name their price to me and I'd buy it back because that was really the, the board that inspired everything for me. And so you were a skateboarder as well. So how did that help you become the surfer that you became? I was a skater. I skated basically every single day, but I wasn't a skater like you see on ramps and stuff. I just, I skated in the streets and I pretended I was surfing. So to me, it was carve, you know, carving on a skateboard. It wasn't, uh, you know, tricks and airs and stuff like that. But it helped me, it really helped me envision everything as a wave. So my mind was constantly on, on the idea of finding these curves and finding the power sections on a wave. And it, it's definitely helpful. You know, it's interesting. You know, I grew up on the East Coast on Long Island, and a lot of my friends were surfers growing up. You know, we get a storm around here. Everybody runs out to the beach because the waves obviously get a lot larger. And I would imagine similar to Cocoa Beach. And I'm just thinking mm. about an East Coast guy going out to California. And I got to believe that the surfers out there look down on you guys. Yeah, we were second-rate citizens for sure when we went to California. <laughs> I remember as a kid, uh, when I was 14, I made the world amateur team. I was the only East Coaster to make it. My brother was the first alternate, so we, we almost both were on the team. Um, uh, sorry, there was another kid from Florida, Todd Holland, who, who made that sp specific team, but he surfed on a West Coast uh, team called the NSSA. And... Um, the NSA was like all the best amateurs in America were on that team. And my brother and I were basically the only two guys that were sort of at that level that were not on that team. So we were sort of outcasts from that as well. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a big challenge. But as a young kid, I came out to California. I made a lot of friends. Um, my sort of best friend at that age was a guy named Chris Brown, who has passed away in recent years. But Chris introduced me to Al Merrick, who was my shaper for 25 years and um, uh, basically my father figure. Um, he shaped boards for Tom Curran, who was my all-time hero. So they, they really took me into that family of, of surfing and, and design. And um, I would say made my career entirely 
the design that Al, the designs Al came up with and the boards he made, made me were like revolutionary designs. And, and, um, I was just honored to be riding boards that Tom Curran rode. So it was all good for me. You know, it was amazing. Uh, when you were growing up, there were pro surfers. They weren't making that big time money. So obviously yeah. it wasn't money that you was in the front forefront of your mind. I'm just thinking that when you finally did turn pro out of high school, you know, what kind of money were you making back then? Oh, I'm trying to think. I, I, the, I signed with, uh, when I was 18 years old, I signed on with Quicksilver. And I, I want to say I was making about $50,000 a year, maybe something like that, maybe 75. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's not I mean, too it wasn't bad, giant actually. money. Yeah, it's, no, well, hey, look, all my other friends were going to college and spending their parents' money, and I was starting to make money, so I felt <laughs> like I was ahead of the game. You know, Kelly, one of the most amazing aspects of your unusually long domination in this sport is while a younger generation grew up doing aerial tricks, you had to learn to master some of the newer airs, if you will, as an accomplished adult surfer. So what motivates you and keeps pushing you to kind of find the new top end of the envelope? The young guys are incredible surfers now. So obviously as a little kid, you look up to the older guys as you become established, you're looking to the people around you. And then at my age, everyone that's inspiring you is younger. So, um, I mean, I'm looking to people like my godson, Jackson Dorian, who was uh, 15, 16 years old, his whole crew of guys. I'm even looking back at, at those kids. They're incredible. And there's a huge skate influence with all of them. Actually, Jackson was a, a skater for years before he started getting into surfing at about nine. He, he was surfing from when he was basically born, but he, he liked skating more than surfing. And then surfing just kind of fell in his lap. As, I think his dad was hoping that would happen so he didn't have to mm-hmm. stay at the skate ramp all day and could stay at the beach. Yeah. But uh, yeah, um, uh, and, and then the young, the, you know, the current world champion, Felipe Toledo, is just absolutely incredible. Gabriel Medina, Italo Ferreira, that those three Brazilian guys, they're all world champions now. They're just spectacularly good. Um, John John Florence from Hawaii is, you know, as good a surfer as you, you'll ever see anywhere in the next hundred years. Um, and, uh, and they're all good in, in all types of different conditions, especially John, who's good in the biggest of the biggest waves in the world, um, but also you know, doing flips and the most incredible errors and rotations that you can do. But a lot of that is skate influence. You'll see all the best air guys now are really good skaters. And um, so there, there is a, 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 a crossbreeding between the two sports for sure. You know, the growth has been just remarkable. I'm just wondering, you know, from where you came from to where you are today, do you think uh, that the surfing has become too technical and maybe the free-flowing, creative, improvisational, aesthetic freedom has been lost a little bit? Uh, it's a good question because I think some of it has been. I think I, – I say all the time I'm glad I grew up when I did because there was still a lot of room to move. There was a lot of growth and it was easy to see where surfing could improve. And now it's getting so technical and precise that – um, I think you start to lose a little bit of that art. And when I was a kid, I was mentioning before, boards were getting shorter, but they were riding single fins, twin fins, and thrusters, uh, three fin boards, and then eventually four fin and five fin boards. And we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have availability to seeing what everyone else is doing immediately around the world. So there were pockets of different types of expression happening in surfing. And based on the, the, the 
environment you were in, the types of waves you surf, the size of the waves you surf, the type of people you're around, there's a real different breed of uh, and style of surfing in different areas. When you went to the Gold Coast in Australia, it was based on these tubing long sand uh, sand point waves where you, you know, you're getting a 30 second, maybe even up to a two minute long ride. Whereas in Cocoa Beach, surfing it or going to Sebastian Inlet, it's about a three of three to 10 second ride. And you might get one to four maneuvers on a wave. And that all those different approaches on different waves give you a different, uh, a different style and different types of maneuvers. So there were these pockets of different people around the world who, who were specializing in certain things. And, um, now everyone sort of specializes in everything. So you, you couldn't watch someone surf and tell where they're from. Um, when in the past you probably could, and there's something kind of unique and different when you, when you had that back in the sort of seventies and eighties that you don't have now, right now, somebody doesn't air at Waco in the wave pool and everyone's seen it within 10 minutes. Um, so there's, you don't have that same sort of mystery, but the, the levels advance a lot quicker. You know, you just talked about the wave pool. Another big part of your contribution to the growth of the sport is that you assembled the team that mastered the first man-made controlled waves in the pool at the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch out in California that you mentioned a little bit earlier. So which waves did you try to replicate and how could, how are you able to do it? Well, with imagination and a good scientist, basically, um, <laughs> I had an idea of the kind of waves I wanted to make for sure. I wanted them to be a cross between a certain couple different certain waves that I surf around the world, one being trestles in Southern California, um, another being the, the Gold Coast, which I mentioned, which are, are long tubing waves on shallow sandbars. Um, and you never really know until you see the wave turn on and, and it breaks and then you kind of can define what, what it's like. But those were definitely inspirations for the wave. We'll be right back to talk about the legacy created by a modern-day old man in the sea right after these messages. Welcome back, everyone. Kelly Slater's mother once said about her prodigy, the water was his security blanket. There was where he felt safe. He could just unload his problems in the water. Years later, a writer would describe the surfing semi-god as Neptune on a short board. And among other things, you've been described as spiritual. You often speak about soul searching while you're surfing. And I'm just wondering if you, especially mystical or magical about being at one with the water, what does that actually mean to you? Yeah, I think that surfing is so immersed in nature, in the ocean, and you're riding this energy that came from usually thousands of miles away. And yeah, there's something spiritual about it. And surfers have always talked about that um, since the early days. It's a really, it's, it's one of the most solitary sports. Um, I mean, you can go anywhere in the world and do it by yourself. You need a surfboard and that's about it. Uh, in fact, it's probably more fun a lot of times to be by yourself. With a couple friends is good, but by yourself is really nice because you just, you're with your thoughts and you're, um, you're just immersed in the thing you love the most. Uh, I, I've always thought of surfing as a spiritual experience. It, it is like my church, if you will. Um, and uh, I, I can't think of anything better I'd ever want to do in the world, to be honest. Spend my life doing something. Surfing's number one.
I know your buddies Tom Brady and Drew Brees have had the feeling that when they wake up on a Sunday, they're going to have the best day of their life and they're going to go out and play the best game of their lives. You know, I've had that feeling myself. I'm just yeah. wondering, when do you realize that you're in the middle of the ultimate and best ride on a surfboard? The ultimate and best what ride? Um, yes. Yeah. There are those days. Yeah, like you said, game days make it sort of uh, hypersensitive to me, like on con competition days, I can tell right away if I'm on or I'm off. And if I got to sort of flip the switch a different way to get into that, I, it's, it's not always easy to know what that is, but sometimes you just don't question it and everything just flows. And other days it, it's like, you're just hitting your head against a wall. And that happens in the ocean too. Not, not necessarily just in competition, just anytime you're surfing, you can just miss that wave or, can, or the other person can just get that wave or, um, you know, you're getting caught inside, you're, you're out of position, your timing's wrong, you're judging waves incorrectly for whatever reason. All those, all those sort of things, um, you can't force it. You just got to be part of it and nature will set you straight right away. You just got to, you, you can't try and force your way when you're surfing. You have to kind of let it come to you. You know, there's dedication, there's commitment, there's the beauty of surfing, the, 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 med, the majestic, you know, standing on top of those big waves, but there's also other hazards that are, you know, associated with your sport like every other sport. And I know that you've lost a number of friends while they yeah. were surfing. Do you ever think about sharks or drowning or hitting your head on the board? And, and if you do, I mean, I'm just wondering how you overcome those things. Yeah, it's probably the number one question people ask me about is sharks when uh when they when they want to know about my world a lot of people say oh i don't want to go in the ocean i don't know what's in there um yeah i've seen thousands of sharks that and none of them have bitten me so the chances are pretty slim there are certain places there are certain sharks there are certain situations you wouldn't get yourself in too often um it's not really worth the risk but there's I don't know. That's part of our lives. You know, there are waves in the world. You want to, you want to go surf and there's great whites. There's, you know, big populations of great whites in certain places. Um, the more you surf those areas, the more chance you're going to encounter those and have a situation happen. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's certain places I just, I probably wouldn't surf by myself and I don't surf very often or I don't put them at the top of my list just because of that situation. I mean, there's on the East coast, you there's a certain time of year you really wouldn't want to surf at Martha's Vineyard. There's just great whites everywhere. Um, yeah. A place like Anya Nuevo up near Santa Cruz, uh, just they, they tag tons of sharks there almost daily. Um, and those are the big ones. You know, the small ones you don't need to worry about so much. There's a place, uh, Del Mar, California, in Southern California. There's great whites there every single day, and people don't realize it. But most of them are small juveniles, and they don't tend to mess with people. You know, given the vast amount of time that you spend in the water training, I know that you're a conservationist. I know that you're an environmentalist. You know, give us uh, an idea of what you do in your free time to make sure that the oceans stay clean and, and why it's so important to all of us. Well, one of the great things is social media. In order to get the message out to a lot of people in, in one go, in five seconds, you can repost something. And if you have a good following and it's something that speaks to people, um, it can get out there really quick to help educate people. But <clears throat> um, funny enough, when I leave this interview we're doing here, 
I'm going to go over and see a kid named Boyan Slat, um, now a young man who at 15 or 16 invented a thing called the ocean cleanup. And it's a device that literally just floats in the ocean and catches it. It floats slower than the tide, than the, than the currents move and basically trash is forced into it. So they're going to put a bunch of these out in the ocean where the gyres are that collect the, the, the currents that end up collecting all the garbage out in the middle of the ocean that we don't really know what to do. It's too vast of an area to go out there and manually clean up. So we're going to need something that is basically kind of sitting there collecting it. And uh, I'm going to go see Boyan after we talk and spend a couple hours with him. But through social media and and through putting that message out that you're whatever you're interested in, people are going to reach out to you. And so I, I do get a lot of opportunities to to help out on things around the world. Um, there's a place there's a, a project in Bali called the Sungai Watch. Um, they go and they pick different waterways and they clean them up. But Bali's got a horrible pollution problem, unfortunately, one of the most beautiful places you'll ever go. But since plastics came in, the single use plastics, it's just become an absolute travesty over there. Uh, there is another group in Bali called Vulcan Energy, and they uh, I just been I've sort of connected with them through social media over the years. And they're taking plastics and melting them back down into fuel, um, which a lot of people don't know you can do. I wish every city around the world had a plastic pollution collection site. And then they would make these make these machines that could turn it back into kerosene and diesel and gasoline. Um, it's one solution. It's not perfect, but it's definitely better than seeing the pollution floating all around the ocean. And we have done tremendous damage to the ocean, to the ecosystems in, in the short amount of time that we've uh, been on this planet. That's for sure. Well, nobody would know that better than you. So Kelly, I got to bring this back to you. And I know you don't like to talk about yourself, but you know, you also did a documentary called The Lost Tapes, which is an 11 part yeah. docu-series. And you allowed these people to follow you around, like it seems like 24 hours a day for like a year. I mean, why did you decide to do that? Well, number one, the guy filming is a friend of mine named Alec Parker, who actually, congratulations, Alec, because he just had a baby six days ago. No. Um, named Nash and uh, but uh, Alec filmed it he's one of my best buddies and most of the time it was just Alec and myself and my girlfriend traveling around so it wasn't a big giant crew but I have a forget me but I have an interesting life uh, because I just know so many people I get to walk in and out of so many walks of life throughout the year and we don't get super into that we're kind of I don't know. I guess you, maybe you've watched a little bit of it. Yeah. it. We just follow my life around and, and I wanted it to be about all the people I encounter and all the places I get to go and that sort of thing. And the, the story obviously revolves around me and uh, the, the later years here in my career. But um, we shot that in 2019 and a lot of wild things happened that year. Um, uh, it, it was it was sad and exciting and fun and scary and uh, all sorts of things. But um, it was a couple of years after coming back from my broken foot and uh, a couple of personal tragedies that, that happened that year with friends. And um, I just thought it'd be really nice to go around and, and, and follow and catch those things that happen that I, you forget about years later. And um, at least one year have them down on tape. And we also did that for the first half of this year from Pipeline until, uh, which, which was in January, February until uh, 
May of this year, Alec traveled with me too, but then the baby was coming along and he had to get home. And, um, so, uh, uh, we, we got half this year as well, but there may be some more stuff I do in the future because I, I do have such a, a, a deep, vast connection and interest into other worlds of music and jujitsu and golf. And, um, you know, those are all big parts of my life and, the people I meet are super interesting and I, I think really it would be valuable to go and tell those stories. So that's something I hope to do in the coming years. You know, Kelly, I came, I came away from that saying, you know, this is the world's worst, most interesting man is what I came away with. I mean, you got a million <laughs> things going on. You, I don't know how you sleep or when you sleep, you don't seem to do that. Now your competition these days is half your age. And the question that I would have for you, number one, you say you're inspired by them. I'm wondering if any of them have the nerve to come up to you and ask you for your advice on how they could either be a better surfer or a better person or what to look forward to in life. You know what's really cool is literally two days ago, Kanoa uh, uh, Igarashi, who uh, surfs for Japan, but he's from Huntington Beach, he wrote me, he and I have exchanged some ideas about technique and, and surfing and he wrote to me two or three days ago and said, hey, here's a little video. Would you look over this and tell me what you think about my carving um, and, and what you might change or how you would approach things differently? And um, I was super stoked to hear that because, number one, he has the confidence to reach out and, and, um, and uh, ask for help in something he's doing to try and better himself. So that shows he has a lot of um, – security with who he is and and he knows he has a lot of room to grow but also that i can share what i have uh to offer another kid named luke swanson young great surfer coming out of hawaii recently asked me for some advice for his career and um and like i mentioned my godson earlier jackson i get to talk to him about that kind of stuff too but maybe some maybe some of the younger guys are aren't so bold to to think i'll want to help them but yeah i'm I'm an open book. I'm happy to help anyone who asks for it. And um, I, I get, I feel really, uh, I, I feel like it's a huge honor when somebody comes and asks me for anything like that. And I've, I've had it happen from kids I don't even know as well. Hey, I, what would you do about this? I want to be a, you know, I want to improve this or that, or what kind of boards would I use? Or who would I talk to to get sponsored for this? I, I mean, I think it's part of my obligation and my job for what I've had in my life to help out. So, um, I think that's great. I have a few short answer, top of mind response questions for you. Are you up for them? Sure. All right. I think they're pretty easy. So uh, your favorite surfing movie? Oh, Fast Times at Richmond High. All right. Your favorite surf music band? Maybe the Hoodoo Gurus from Australia because they were soundtrack to a lot of the movies I liked as a kid or... Um, the surf punks that were a punk band out of Zuma Beach when I was a little kid. All right, your favorite surfing song? Uh, gosh. Maybe something by the Beach Boys. Uh, yeah. When I, when I first met Bill, Bill Murray, uh, just to, not to sidetrack too much, but he was playing ahead of me at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am and he would finish his holes and then he would stand on the green and sing Beach Boys songs to me, uh, which was hilarious. <laughs> Bill Murray singing Beach Boys songs. Yes, I can't wait yeah. to see that. All right. Now, in Eddie Warhol's interview, uh, once referred to you as half fish, half dish. 
Now, which one of these potential Kelly Slater bald lookalikes do you consider most closely resemble you? Is it retired <laughs> tennis legend Andre Agassi, Hockey Hall of Famer Mark Messier, or New York football head coach Robert Sala? Gosh, I don't know. I I silently suffered some of the similar uh, feelings that Agassi had when he was losing his hair. <laughs> you know, as a young guy, it's really embarrassing to go through that. I, I think it's funny now, but that's a process that takes years and you got to go through. Um, funny story, I met Andre uh, at a UFC event uh, cage side many years ago. We made a $20 bet on the fight and he had to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great, Guy. Appreciate it, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Boomer Science, and I'll see you again real soon right here on Game Time with University of Arizona basketball coach Tommy Lloyd.